Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. We hope that you're having a good year so far. I wanted to just say real quick here that this podcast is kind of a two-parter, really a three-part eclectic episode. And you may have heard the first part of this on our Biblical World podcast that focuses on Elephantine, um, an island, a Jewish colony in, on the Nile uh, in Egypt, uh, an ancient Jewish colony there. And then I talk with Colin Cornell, who I'm interviewing in this podcast, about two other books that he was involved in. One he wrote, and another one he was editor for. So a couple components to this podcast. I really enjoyed speaking with Colin. Hope you enjoy this. It's a bit longer interview, but we cover a lot of ground. So um, I think you're in for a real treat. Um, and as always, um, if you get a chance to rate or review the podcast on one of the many platforms out there, you, hey, you could hit them all um, and just go on a reviewing spree. That would be really helpful to us and for helping people find this podcast. And most of all, thanks so much for listening and for your support. Enjoy. Welcome back, everyone. Our guest today is Dr. Colin Cornell who is the Provost Candler Postdoctoral Teaching Fellow at Candler School of Theology and Emory University. Colin is the author of Divine Aggression in Psalms and Inscriptions, Vengeful Gods and Loyal Kings, and he's the editor of two books, first of all, Divine Doppelgangers, Yahweh's Ancient Lookalikes, and a forthcoming volume called The Incomparable God Readings in Biblical Theology, uh, which is a collection of Brent Strawn's essays. He's also co-translated from Dutch the book Biblical ABCs, The Basics of Christian Resistance, which is a book about K.H. Miskota. And uh, he's got projects in the works right now. So, Colin, welcome to OnScript. Thanks so much, Matt. I am truly grateful to be here. Uh, I feel like this is crossing some uh, thresholds and rite of passage as a biblical scholar. Um, I count myself maybe not a super fan, but uh, that's a, that's a very distinguished, you know, elite uh, echelon. But a, but a mega fan at least of, of the podcast. All right, that's a new category. So so thanks for carving out that space. Yeah, Colin, I've I've long admired your your range as a scholar and and seeing the the sort of uh, interests that you've pursued both in kind of history of ancient Israelite religion, biblical studies, biblical theology, theology proper. So I'm wondering if you could talk first uh, about what kind of drew you into this range of areas, um, why you've not stayed put in one lane, and but also like some of the driving concerns that might unify those different pursuits that you've had. Yeah, it's a good question. And uh, um, I appreciate the kind of uh, uh, game recognizing game in terms of range, because um, you're, you're rather a roving, uh, roving biblical scholar yourself. Um, but as far as uh, not keeping to one lane, it's interesting that you frame it like that because uh, I do tend myself to see, in spite of I, I you know, admit the, the diversity of um, kind of areas that my writings have covered, uh, that it, it really does boil down to one one big lane, 
Um, my primary uh, interest uh, is, if you will, um, God. And I know that probably most of the theological disciplines would uh, lay claim to that, but I tend to think about most of what I do is as at, at most a half step away from questions about the person and profile of God. And so some of the works I've done uh, address God in kind of a historical key. You mentioned the religion historical pieces. So that's tracing out the ways that concepts of God um, respond to historical events, circumstances, changes uh, of intellectual regimen, and so on. So kind of God in a historical key. And then uh, plenty of other uh, stuff I've pursued has looked into God in a more constructive direction. So how do worshiping communities, particularly Christians, um, talk in responsible, interesting, uh, promising, galvanizing ways about God, uh, the living God? So, but it all orbits around the person and profile of God. You're you're describing one big lane there, um, but in some ways, those are often at odds with one another. Doing so, like pursuing those questions of God in a historical key and in a constructive key. So, are there any models that you've had of people that have integrated those well that you're kind of looking to, or do you feel like you're flying solo? What's how do you position? your relationship to other scholars who have pursued that endeavor. And and I know there's, you know, there's the theological interpretation of scripture pathway that some have tried to carve out. And I'm curious where you've positioned yourself in that sense. Yeah. Uh, the question about, about precursors, precedents, mentors is a good and interesting one. I have at times felt as if I haven't had a, a go-to off-the-shelf model for the kind of scholarship I wanted to. Although I will say I was really fortunate to have as my doctoral advisor, Brent Strawn, who is somebody who I think um, moves between domains uh, within biblical studies well um, and kind of with rare breadth. So, uh, but you're right, there are, I didn't have many other examples of how to, how to do that well. And so um, I think how I'm shuttling between these considerations about how Concepts of God are embedded in their context, how, they're, how they are responsive to cultural, linguistic kind of changes, and, and how that in some way disciplines, interacts, chastens the kind of ways that we want to launch you know, live claims about who God is in the world today uh, is kind of still experimental for me. And I've tried out a number of different avenues along that um, way. And as far as your, your second part of your question about theological interpretation, I, I've been a, an avid follower and reader of works in that vein, uh, really since, it, since the Journal uh, of Theological Interpretation launched, and I've occasionally contributed to those kind of venues. I think, though, if I had to say something about how I locate myself relative to theological interpretation, it's as somebody who's been deeply appreciative uh, of some of the main players in that field. And also as somebody who is maybe still interested in the kind of revisionary potential of biblical theologizing. So I'm, I, I do, at the end of the day, trust that uh, the kinds of findings that biblical scholars, uh, even ones working in critical and historical modes, uh, discern that they ultimately are convergent with the kind of deep core claims made by our Christian tradition. But I don't want to close that distance too quickly. And sometimes I'm a little, I'm a little bit uh, uneasy um, with with linking ourselves too directly back into past eras uh, of classic interpretation, the kind of moves that 
our, our forebears in faith have made are, are good and, and right, and we can learn much from them, I have, um, but not to repristinate, not to sort of try to, try to reprise them directly uh, in our own situation without at least some really thoughtful recalibration. So I, I want to start out by talking about your interest in Elephantine. And uh, for listeners who aren't familiar with what that is at all, I'm wondering if you could start out by just giving an introduction to what Elephantine is and some of its significance for uh, the history of Judaism and, you know, thinking about Persian period literature and so on. Yeah. So um, Elephantine uh, became kind of a joke, actually, at the, the seminary where I taught for three and a half years, uh, simply because I would uh, bring it up so much and I could sort of leave a beat uh, in sermons given in the seminary chapel, um, start to segue towards you know, there was this ancient Jewish community, <laughs> kind of leave a pause and, the, and, and students would be able to fill in the blank um, because uh, of how I brought up Elephantini. And I, I'm just going to go with, just going to run uh, sin boldly with Elephantini. Yeah. Um, maybe that's, we'll say that's the reconstructed Koine pronunciation or, or some such. Let's go for um, it. Thank you. Um, but uh, anyway, so wh- what is it? That is the name of an island in the Nile at the very southernmost border of both ancient and modern Egypt. And the reason it's of interest to folks like us is because there was a community, garrison, uh, a military outpost. I'm unclear myself exactly how directly everybody who was involved in the larger community of Aramaic-speaking people there was kind of serving in the military uh, garrison. Uh, but at any rate, kind of a, a military outpost, fortress facing southwards, trying to in, uh, ward off incursions from Nubia, uh, but also um, probably more directly, honestly, to suppress revolts of the subject native Egyptians. Uh, so uh, the time period, though, we're talking about is the 5th century, 400s, a little bit into the 300s BCE. Uh, and again, the reason it's of interest to folks like us is because among the Aramaic-speaking peoples who uh, populated the community, who served in the garrison, uh, were Jews or Judeans. You know, there's some dispute about the rectitude of, of that, you know, whichever nomenclature. But at any rate, folks who were worshiping the Lord, the biblical God, who served the Lord in a temple there uh, that they had on the island, uh, and who um, you know, are in other ways... Uh, sort of off the map of what we might expect of religiously observant Second Temple Jews. So that's the interest is, what were they doing down there? Uh, And there's also sort of remarkable drama to do with the destruction of that temple that they had down there at the the instigation of the local native Egyptians who resented um, the colonization of of the Achaemenid Persian Empire and the Jews were sort of the middlemen in that situation, the foot soldiers of the empire. Uh, And so they were kind of caught up in the crossfire, as it were, the native Egyptians trying to throw off Persian rule. And the nearest people they can reach are the Judeans. so They can, you know, poison their well and knock down their temple. And so that's what they arranged to do. Yeah, I I have a story about this island. Back in 2011, I went with my family and in-laws on a like Aswan to Luxor, sort of Nile boat ride. And... And we went by Elephantine and I said to our guide, I said, hey, that's, uh, I can't believe we're right here. And there was a Jewish colony there. And, and he's like, no, there wasn't. 
And I said, yeah, there was, there's, you know, pathological evidence about them. And, you know, we, we can actually read about this. He's like, no, there wasn't, there was no Jewish community there. I was like, okay, that's the official line. (laughs) So it was a very odd thing. I don't, I don't know what kind of politically was behind that or what, but it was a, it was a very strange uh, encounter. So I, I, we, we proceeded past it. I did not get off and I wish I had and been able to dig around in the dirt a bit. But anyway, that was my brush with uh, Elfantine. Interesting. Interesting. Maybe, yeah. I, I'm curious about that. Some, some, I don't know, some political misgivings or, or yeah. unease with that yeah. history. Who knows what's going on there? But yeah, yeah that is intriguing. I don't actually know myself what you would have even been able to see had you gotten off the boat. Yeah, um, exactly. Like how, how much is visible? Yeah, it's probably all overgrown from my memory. I'm trying to think of like what I could even visibly see. I think it was just a lot of vegetation from what I remember, but it's a bit fuzzy. That was 11 (laughs) years ago now. Um, So what are the sources of our information about this Jewish colony? Yeah, uh, well, thankfully, uh, now um, scholars can access the pretty remarkable uh, multi-volume work uh, edited by Basil Alporton and Ada Yardani, uh, the textbook of Aramaic documents from ancient Egypt. Uh, and those are each arranged by genre. So you can look at letters, administrative documents, um, and so on. So that's a handy go-to and pretty comprehensive gazetteer, if you will, of Elephantini documents, Aramaic documents from Egypt, of which most are from, you know, they're mostly from the island. Yeah, available um, at your local Walmart, I'm sure. Exactly, exactly, yeah. yeah. And there are a couple other places one might look, um, the Hermopolis letters. Uh, there's also been some recently really interesting publications coming out of Berlin. There's a project that's been going on there for some years uh, that's essentially trying to critically edit and publish little tiny fragmentary texts that were exported from the island in the early 20th century, kind of lost a little bit. And then um, people are now sort of paying attention to them. But so far, from what I can tell, and I, you know, we'll see, but they're, they're, they're really, really, really small. Um, so they're like filling in a couple words that are missing from, you know, like the the Ahikar story or something. So nothing, nothing too, too earth shattering so far. Um, so still your, your, your local Walmart, Walmart's version of the textbook of Aramaic documents is going to be your best, best bet yeah, for yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, unless you have a sort of local antiquities dealer that is selling off fragments, you might want to check them out. See if you have a little papyrus from, are these all papyrus I assume, or yeah, yeah, they they are. I'm 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 hesitant to say they're all, but that they're okay. the ones I can think of. It's all yeah, papyri. Yeah, it's such a common story that in in a lot of these big finds. So this was when was this found? Like late 1800s or 1901, 1911. Okay. Yeah. So it's such a common story. I was just speaking with Malka Simkovich about various discoveries, literary discoveries, and and it's you know as we were talking about like. The Cairo Geniza and uh, St. Catherine's mm-hmm. Monastery, um, Dead Sea Scrolls. It's so common that there's a big find where you get a lot of documents and it turns out a lot of it is on the antiquities market or has been sold off or taken elsewhere. And and then there's this like second phase of trying to piece together what all is floating around. That is certainly the case. Um, yeah. And, and also, as with so many of these uh, significant finds of the late 19th and early 20th century, 
Um, Elephantini too is deeply implicated in histories of colonization and kind of orientalizing. You know, it was sort of a race between French and Germans. They actually drew a line down the middle of the island, and then were both uh, kind of uh, trying to find. Actually, they're both trying to find the find biblical fragments. That was what they were after. Uh, they did, so they were disappointed in that regard, but they did find some some other uh, very interesting and unexpected texts. You know, uh, there had been some mentions, obviously, in in the Bible, in the Book of Jeremiah, about uh, Jewish communities in Egypt, even in southern Egypt, at the place that kind of you know Pathros, which is Elephantini. But so they were disappointed in terms of finding biblical fragments. It wasn't a Cairo Geniza story all over again. Uh, but what they did turn up was unexpected and. Uh, and in, in some ways um, invited sort of revised understanding of uh, early Judaism. Yeah. Right. So how so? How so? Like what what was surprising about the nature of these documents that were found and and the archaeology of the site? Uh, so what was surprising was really, I mean, first there's a lot of the documents that are more administrative, shorter, um, kind of more more boring. I tell my students always that the majority of documents that scholars have on tap from from antiquity are are dreadfully boring just kind of administrative uh, records judicial decisions so on that's true for elephantini as well Um, but for scholars who have done the really hard legwork of piecing together the scenarios and the kind of legal customs that are ingredient in those administrative documents from elephantini they've discovered interesting phenomena to do with how marriages worked how divorce worked how property uh, inheritance worked um, so that's kind of one area, but I'd say this much splashier uh, storyline emerging from the Elephantini uh, documents in Aramaic uh, was this one that I've already mentioned about the destruction of their temple. Uh, and then the letters of which there are two drafts, they kind of practiced uh, you know, trial run, write, write your letter uh, to try to persuade um, the authorities back in the Jewish and Samar- Samarian, Samaritan homeland, uh, to basically try to finagle with the Persian authorities to authorize the rebuilding of that temple that had been destroyed. And then the sign-off via a memo by the Persian authorities um, that, yeah, you can rebuild, but you've got to make some changes to the renewed sort of second temple on Elephantini. Uh, and so all that is very splashy and interesting for a number of reasons. Uh, and I would say sort of overall why Elephantini is interesting or should be interesting is maybe maybe three reasons, I would say. One, pedagogically, um, the way that I first try to intro any of this to students is just to, is just to say that this is a this is sort of a wrinkle. This is a, a sort of complication in our map of early Judaism, that here we have a form of worship um, that we would not otherwise have inferred. That you have Jewish people worshiping in their own temple, which is you know forbidden according to Deuteronomistic and, and other kinds of cult centralization project. They are also occasionally swearing by other deities, you know, taking oaths in a court setting by gods who are not the Lord, the biblical God. That's surprising. Um, when they take a some kind of a um, document that's co- collecting donations from the Jewish community, uh, they dedicate that those monies um, to not just the Lord, but actually to three distinct entities. Uh, so it could be cult statues, could be, you know, there's a lot of debate about it, but at any rate, odd and unexpected in terms of practice. So it's just a complication 
it's a sort of a, and I think that that's helpful for students, especially folks who are, who are kind of primed to expect that accounts one finds in, say, Ezra Nehemiah, Haggai, kind of quote-unquote post-exilic materials is, is just a, a sort of pristine and exhaustive rendition of what's happening within Judaism of that era. So at, at, at a minimum, pedagogically, what Elephantini does is to say, well, there's actually more things twixt heaven and hell than your philosophy has dreamt of, whatever that <laughs> quote is from yeah. um, Hamlet or what, I don't know. But at any rate, so that's pedagogically just kind of wrinkled complication. Um, it, uh, it shows us that we, we have more work to do in filling out a total picture of early Judaism than only consulting Ezra Nehemiah, Haggai, etc. The other, so that's one. Two, um, and, and thinking more kind of uh, historically, so religion historically, Elephantini raises all kinds of questions about the emergence of Torah. So this is a very lively question, as you'll know, uh, in the study of early Judaism. Uh, when did the kind of practices that uh, we just see as default on the scene in, say, uh, the New Testament, when do those really become binding? When do those become widespread? And so a case could be made that Elephantini is kind of an argument from silence in that these folks don't seem to know anything about the Bible, aren't seemingly observing kind of Sabbath or dietary laws or really any of the kind of protocols to do with marriage. Um, and so that could be could be kind of negative witness uh, to uh, when uh, Torah is ascendant in early Judaism. Uh, I think it's actually more complicated than that, so we can loop back to that. But that's a, a very commonplace point of view. Uh, and you had folks early on in the history of thinking about Elephantini who would say that this is sort of the QED. This is the proof of Wellhausen's hypothesis, um, the, the finding of Elephantini. So for religion historical work. It's provocative. It's interesting. It demands some kind of uh, explanation, uh, even to the extent of perhaps rebalancing how we see early Judaism. There was a great article a while back uh, by my Norwegian Elephantini friend, Gard Grenerod, uh, Grenerud, I'm not sure that's his last name, but anyway, great piece of work. His work in general is great. But in JBL, uh, just about should we observe a moratorium on the term second temple? Judaism, because that whole outlook, in effect, is sort of a secularized paraphrase of the Bible itself um, that that really uh, orbits around the second temple uh, versus other forms of Ju- Judaism um, that have their own temple that aren't uh, don't sort of define themselves just vis-a-vis that that one temple in Jerusalem. And so he thinks Elephantine is a good uh, sort of counter counterbalance. Yeah, you might have to talk about Second Temple's Judaism or something Judaism yeah, I mean, or yeah. something along those lines, which is a bit That's more right. of a mouthful, not as easy to, <laughs> it is. to say. <laughs> yeah. But you, do, you have the Samaritan Temple as well. Yes, uh, yes, north, That's right. And as we talked about at SBL, um, you know, possibly one in the Transjordan as well. So yeah. that's just what we have record of. So if, if, yes. if Jewish people in the Persian period have multiple temples, then at what point can we speak about second, second, third, fourth, fifth temple Judaism? Right, right. That's right. Yeah. Um, and, and that's a case where it could be our theory runs up against some data that uh, it fits fairly awkwardly. And so we need to reconceptualize how do we talk about early Judaism 
in ways that don't make Elephantini kind of this exotic, bizarro phenomenon, but just sort of part of the whole landscape of, of Judaism. And so maybe Second Temple Judaism as a term sort of shoehorns our expectations in ways that, that make Elephantini seem like a weirder than than it ought. Yeah, and then and then later the uh the temple at Leontopolis as well. Yeah. I don't really know much about it. I just know that it's it's referenced and I don't think there's is there any archaeological evidence from that one? Not that I no I well I don't know, but yeah. not that I've read about. I've only read the kind of literary mm-hmm. artifacts yeah. around that, that yeah. Thing. Great. And then your third one? Yeah third one is and this is of more recent interest to me, uh just the kind of meta theory around Elephantini, which is why, why is it so uh, engaging to scholars? What is it, and what does it mean that it was in, in search of the Bible that Elephantini sort of grew to any kind of a, you know, became a scholarly point of conversation? And how does it even now draw a lot of its energy, a lot of its uh, foci from the Bible proper. And so it really is kind of a study in a parabiblical kind of sociology of knowledge type of type of thing. And, and in that way, again, I think it's an occasion for religion historians to really think through what they, what we are doing vis-a-vis the Bible. Uh, and are we just kind of doing Bible-like things with a literature that's very, very similar in certain ways or shares certain characters or share certain points of attention and discourse with the Bible. So yeah, it's kind of a meta meta phenomenon. I think it's interesting too. You know, in some ways I find that inescapable, you know, like I'm drawn to Elephantini because I'm saying it your way now, um, to, because of uh, my interest in Persian period biblical literature and is the concern there that that sort of biblical focus misconstrues what that place represents or what its literature is or, you know, what what is the concern with that? Yeah, that's a very good question. I think that a lot of people, a lot of the people in the Elephantine network, um, and it's, you know, it's not a, it's not a big uh, group. Um, they're, they're in every city. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the Elephantine network. But, uh, <laughs> yes. Like conspiracy. I, th- I think that a lot of the scholars who work on Elephantini would would share that kind of concern that somehow there's contamination from from the canonicity of the Bible uh, that leaks over onto Elephantini and kind of obscures some of the dynamics that are at play with Elephantini. That's actually not. I mean, yes, that's. I I agree. That's we should be you know watch out. Um, but my concern actually along that axis looks the opposite way. But I think you have a lot of scholars who are ostensibly, ostensibly um, working to do religion historical reconstruction and end up doing theology. They want to sort of make claims about um, ethics, about empire, about God, but they do it sort of cryptically through Elephantini scholarship. So that's that's been one of my perhaps idiosyncratic uh, sort of calls to the to the Elephantini network. It's been how how much are we just doing theology, even kind of biblical theology, but just substituting in a different uh, literature? What what would be an example of doing that? Uh, another really great recent work, actually, I think you could say this probably for several of the recent books, and it's kind of been a book a year on Elephantini in the last 
five or seven years. Uh, but uh, some of the recent books, I'm thinking of Bob Becking, Carol Vandertorn's books, uh, which are really, really wonderful, close, detailed, sort of erudite, but also do, I think, have somewhat of a constructive interest, let's say. And that is, uh, especially in Bob Becking's case, he's thinking about multicultural societies. How can societies composed of various ethnic groups, various religious traditions, how can they cohabit successfully for the long term? And so he finds an Elephantini, an example of a community that was multi-ethnic, that was, I don't know if multi-religious, multi-religious might be pretty anachronistic, adding multi-ethnic might be too, but at any rate, bringing diverse worship traditions into the same you know, geographical space, and, but they lived, they coexisted for a century and a half. It was all pretty rosy there, wasn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was. Under the shadow of the Persian Empire and as, you know, foot soldiers to suppress uh, Egyptian uh, sedition. But at any rate, he wants to find some kind of a positive lesson, I think, in Elephantini, in the the coexistence of these different peoples. And that's a constructive interest. That's trying to say we are also struggling to figure out how to live together uh, in modern societies. And so Elephantini maybe can help us, even though, yeah, it's, it's totally imperial. Elephantini was, that is, his Persian garrison, an occupying power. Yeah, that's, that's a helpful example. Um, but just to go back to the temple for a moment, was this a temple to Yahweh? Who, what do we know of the nature of this temple? Yeah, it, it, it was certainly a temple um, to the, not necessarily the, the Tetragrammaton, interestingly, but rather the uh, trito, Tritogram. Tritogrammaton, I'm not sure, but the but three letters, they, they use three letters in Elephantini. Um, Yahoo, Yahoo, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but but yeah, so it was the, the biblical god, seemingly, and um, potentially, like I say, with uh, some, some other deities in the mix, although that is not sort of how most Jewish writings refer in shorthand to the temple. It's always the temple of, of Yahoo. But like I say, in the collection document, the donation list, uh, there are a couple of other seemingly divine uh, beings uh, who receive donations from the Jewish community uh, for and, and with regard to the temple. So could be there were some other, you know, little a trio, um, a divine family, perhaps. I don't know. Um, but something not just Yahoo strictly. Seems, seems like probably the case. Yeah, or that was at least being invoked there. And it's right up against, yeah. Is it was it right up against another temple as well, Egyptian temple? Yeah, good good, uh, good memory there. It is. It's actually, I mean, everything is sort of right up against each other uh, on the island. It's all really, really packed together. In fact, um, in a recent edited volume that I had to review, by edited by Margaret Fulmer, um, there's some pretty great essays in there. One by the, uh, really the, kind of premier archaeologist of the site today, Cornelius von Pilgrim. And he talks about how the, the houses were three, I think two or three stories tall. So really like packed, packed in there and packed in in order to accommodate the sudden influx of soldiers and their families, kind of the whole you know community that, that comes along when you staff a military garrison. But anyways, yeah, so super packed together. And that means that they were mm, probably like across the street, but really, really close to the temple of Knum who is the millennial Egyptian god worshipped uh, in that place. And what do you think happened to this 
Jewish colony, once the Egyptians kind of took back over, took, you know, wrested control from the Persians, did they flee south, north, scatter? What do you think? What's your hypothesis? It's kind of unanswerable. Bob Becking thinks that some of them probably fled south into Nubia. I think there's some evidence um, based on the latest letters from the site that some folks just stuck around from the Jewish community and from the Aramean community that lived cheek by jowl with them. It was also very multi-ethnic. So there were folks from Central Asia living there, folks from Anatolia, really from sort of all over, all over the place, but mostly Jews and Arameans. Um, and sometimes it's hard to discern which is which because Jews get called Arameans in some contexts and vice versa. So tricky, tricky business to try to figure out exactly who is who. Um, and because as is oftentimes the case if you study like Greek garrisons, that certain quarters of a city will keep the name of the ethnic group that lived there even after they're no longer there. It's kind of like we have a Chinatown, but but it's not necessarily like, it's not all just Chinese people who live there anymore. It's kind of the same thing, same type of situation where you have a community or have a garrison, have an actual military unit that's named after a specific ethnic group. Uh, but it's anybody's guess if if that's still a majority or even you know a plurality of the actual people who serve in that unit. Um, so tricky business trying to discern ethnicity in antiquity. Um, but anyway, what happened to them? I think some of them stuck around. Um, and uh, I, I would say continuity is probably with the the varied Levantine groups living in Hellenistic Egypt. So once the Persians have withdrawn, um, then we have uh, the Ptolemies taking over in the you know, Hellenistic period. And there are still a lot of people from the Aegean living around in, in Egyptian cities and still serving in military roles, being police, being administrators. And you have a lot of Jews, obviously, living in Alexandria, other places kind of along the Egyptian, um, you know, along the Nile, and other Levantines. So other peoples from Syria, Palestine, Transjordan, uh, who are living and worshiping, have their own temples uh, in uh, Greek Egypt as well. Well, fascinating stuff from Elephantini. <laughs> I hope you think so. <laughs> okay, I'd like to talk about your book, Divine Aggression in Psalms and Inscriptions, Vengeful Gods and Loyal Kings. So, um, in that book, you, you talk about, among other people, two figures that are probably known to most of our listeners, Julius Wellhausen and Walter Eichrott. And uh, these are two famous 19th and 20th century German biblical scholars, and they argued for a particular theological innovation in ancient Israel. Uh, What was that innovation, and what's your take on their view on that innovation? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So the interest of their innovation, uh, and I'll say this just even before describing what that innovation was, uh, the alleged innovation uh, is is really because their view has experienced something of a renaissance uh, in biblical scholarship, and so I first encountered it probably not directly from either Bellhausen or Eichrott, but rather uh, via some of their more recent proponents and advocates and aftercomers. Um, Reinhard Kratz is probably a scholar known known to you and others uh, in traveling with him, uh, who really first drew my attention to this idea, which is that Israel and Judah, these Iron Age kingdoms, began in most regards very similarly to other ancient Levantine kingdoms, thinking here of places like 
Ammon, Edom, Moab, the Aramean kingdoms. Maybe the Phoenician cities are a little bit of a different idiosyncratic case, but nonetheless, that there's regional shared properties uh, to do with the national cult and with the profile of the gods and so on. So that all these would have begun very similarly. And that if that's the case, then these more recent folks, the sort of Wellhausen Renaissance uh, people uh, argue that some explanation must be given for how they ended up so very differently. That if you don't have a world uh, religion that orbits the Moabite deity, Chemosh. And so why is that? What went differently with these kingdoms of Israel and Judah such that their patron god became god, became sort of the, the, the god uh, shared between Judaism and Christianity and and so, yeah, so the explanation that they offer, and this is especially Wellhausen, but also some of his more recent interpreters, is uh, that really it has to do with experiences of defeat, that there's a unique situation uh, in Israel and Judah in that they have a shared God between them. That's not the case for those Transjordanian kingdoms that each have their own signature deity, uh, so that if, say, one of them was steamrolled by the Babylonians or the Assyrians. That wasn't the case for them, it was the Babylonians. But there's no there's no neighbor successor who can inherit some of the literature, the traditions from them. Whereas that was the case with Israel and Judah, that uh, there's sort of a, an interchangeability and hence a sort of succession that can happen and did happen there. And that means that the experience of defeat and loss and interruption that occurred, not just from exile, but from the loss of the king, kingship, from the suspension of the kingship, from the interruption of temple worship and all that, had a different kind of interpretive resource in Judah um, than these other Transjordanian kingdoms, or Aramean kingdoms, because of the precedent, the antecedent of that northern kingdom that fell and that sense of sibling uh, kind of relationship and reciprocity between the, those two kingdoms. So in that telling, which is here, I'm again, just channeling Bellhausen and his aftercomers, in that telling, wrath, divine judgment, is crucial and takes on kind of an outsized role relative to the presentation of other regional deities because of that sort of turnover, that kind of inheritance of traditions to do with defeat, that they could, Judeans, that is, the southern neighbor to the, to Israel, could somehow marinate in defeat and think about it in a different and more radical way because of being downstream of the northern kingdom's prophets and, and their defeat. That's a really helpful overview. So, so in other words, the northern kingdom of Israel gets steamrolled by the Assyrians, right, and they come down, many of them flee south as refugees and are incorporated, absorbed into Judah, with whom they've already had a lot of cultural interchange. And so there you have a people who are having to deal with defeat within the context of Judah, where there is still an active Yahwism at work. And so uh, theologizing through defeat as a people had a precedent so that when Judah was steamrolled by the Babylonians, they had resources to draw from. 
That's right. That, that's right. And uh, that's all true. And also the fact that if there were canaries in the coal mine in the north, they were proven correct. So that the kind of voices that, are, that were anticipating doom were vindicated. And so some of their warnings, some of their injunctions, some of their outlook became all the more credible potentially, to the South. So, you know, people sort of splice and dice that scenario, exactly how the inheritance traditions worked, what traditions were even, you know, are we talking about in the North? To what extent are the Northern prophets like Hosea, are they sort of literarized or how much traces back to the 8th century and so on? There's a a lot of dispute around all the kind of finer points of that. Um, But it's that basic idea that somehow the patron god's judgment became this really crucial fulcrum point in a distinctive way to Judah because of its shared situation with the North. That is the, the, the basic sort of set of, of moves intellectually that Bellhausen first, I mean, he had precedence and, and sort of, you know, forecomers too, but that's, he articulated in a really forceful way. And then people, you know, Kratz and other folks more recently have recovered that. And as far as your opening question about Eichrod, uh, he's an interesting test case. He's not oftentimes drawn into the same conversation with Wellhausen. He's a very different kind of scholar. You know, Wellhausen is most famous for source criticism. Uh, but he actually said, um, I don't remember exactly in what book he said this, but he said that uh, all that kind of source critical uh, splicing and dicing, divvying, divvying up is it's just like a game of Skittles to him, which I, I'm not really sure what. You know what Skittles is? Not the taste of rainbow kind. <laughs> That's but, it. I was I was waiting for you to unpack that, but <laughs> I'm not sure. Some kind of Victorian. I, I assume game. it's something where you're kind of moving pieces around, but that's <laughs> taste the rainbow of sources. Yeah. Um, but yeah, anyways, he said it's just. Anyway, he thought that that's just kind of like secondary to him. What he was really interested in is sort of the religion. History. That's like his, uh, you know, scholarly warm up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's throat clearing and. Um, <laughs> Versus the the kind of religion historical thing, uh, which is this changeover of eras from something that looked much more like the kinds of practice we see in. He really loved. Bellhausen was kind of obsessed from from youth with the Samuel and King stories, which are much wilder and earthier and kind of different vibe to them than the you know Torah and the priestly prescriptions and so on. There's a lot of anti-Semitic junk built into Bellhausen, but anyways, that, that's what he was into. Aikro is really different in a lot of ways because Aikro is famous as an Old Testament theologian. And he was a Swiss Calvinist. Um, you know, Bellhausen famously resigned his theological post. Aikro is kind of like the max, maxed out golden age of Old Testament theology, one of the still sort of uh, most interesting, comprehensive Old Testament theologies uh, from the, I don't know, 30s. Uh, but nonetheless, he shares, and this is what interested me about bringing them together, juxtaposing them, he shares the idea that somehow what makes the theologizing of Israel and Judah, the sort of biblical traditions, distinctive is the extremity of divine judgment and wrath. Um, And so Aikro arranges the chronology really differently. He doesn't, he, he wants to maintain that kind of uh, Israel's distinctiveness emerges early 
that it's it's different primordially from Sinai onwards, whereas Wellhausen thinks Sinai is kind of a later add-on and things were really much more similar to start uh, religion historically. But nonetheless, they think they sort of uh, use the same criterion to distinguish Israel from its religious neighbors. So, so both of them are dealing with that kind of larger question of the distinctiveness of Israelite religion and beliefs and literature and are, are landing perhaps most forcefully, I don't know if that's quite accurate, but on this idea that God can turn against his people yeah, uh, in, in very aggressive, wrathful ways. Okay, so what do you do with that? What, um, what do you make of that assessment and why was that important to them? Yeah, in a way, it seems common sense, I think, probably to most listeners, because, of course, the God of the Old Testament is notorious for getting angry at uh, God's own client people and the king and and so on. Uh, So it seems common sense. But viewed against the background of other texts that we can read from Israel's ancient neighbors, uh, especially in the Levant, you know, the Misha inscription, kind of other comparable inscriptional texts, uh, we we simply do not find that patron gods destroy their own country, sort of cutting off the branch they're they're sitting on, really, uh, in, in a certain way. So that makes the, the behavior of the biblical god appear uh, much more strikingly, much it's, it's odder, and it and it and it and really invites some kind of religion historical explanation. How did things end up so differently? Why did why is this distinctiveness theologically the way that it is? Yeah. Why is Israel so self-critical uh, yes. is, is one way it's put. It, you know, and it reminds me by analogy of ways that people have distinguished Israelite prophecy. So in comparison to, say, Assyrian prophetic oracles or those way back from Mari, the idea that Israel's prophets stood against the king, they spoke truth to power. There's this anti-monarchic bent to the prophets, whereas, and this is the the generalization, the Assyrians and the people at Mari had a more kind of court-supporting prophet. Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. And and uh, you'll find folks who will say, as far as that goes, you're, that's absolutely relevant, very actually kind of directly related to all this. I, I had to do one of my uh, comprehensive exams on prophets and on some of that sort of comparing with the, you know, the Akkadian archive and the Mari one and all that stuff. And you'll find folks who will argue that even in moments when Akkadian prophets or, you know, or, the, or the Mari prophets are critical of the king, that folks will still argue that it's still couched in a basically recuperative mode, that they're never calling off kingship entirely, that they're never saying the nation as a whole, it is doomed, whereas that is more or less what we find in Hebrew scripture and, and in Hebrew prophets. Um, so yeah, so so my way into these authors and the larger set of religion historical questions really came not so much from all the discourse that happens in uh, sort of Christian and constructive and theological circles about how what do we do with the violence of Hebrew scripture with the sort of with divinely sanctioned or divinely enacted aggression, but rather more so from this historical vantage point of how is it that the biblical God is seemingly so much more destructive towards these parties that otherwise are the beneficiary of a patron god. 
just like this, it's sort of like saying, you know, and this I think I say in maybe roundabout way in the in the book, but uh, whoever the kind of patron god is, you know, God bless America, God, that's that kind of civic deity. Um, we would never expect to act against the country, and in fact, it's still very scandalous for folks to imagine that. Similarly, in antiquity, for the god whose whole job it is to bless and protect the country, to say the country is going under or go out and meet the enemy outside the city gates. Very traitorous. Yeah. I mean, you you evoke in the beginning of the book, the sermon of Jeremiah Wright where he says, God damn America. And that, that caused a huge stir. And, you know, for many people even called the legitimacy of Barack Obama's candidacy into question because he had attended that church. But yet, Time and again, we read that sort of rhetoric from Israel's prophets. So, so you're, you're entering this conversation about the distinctiveness of Israel in relation to divine aggression. And, and that question, like, is Israel's God more aggressive toward the people and king than Israel's neighbors? And, and so what, what text do you decide to compare for this study to analyze that um, comparison? Yeah, so... Um... What I thought I'd look at is really to test the difference, to test claims about distinctiveness by isolating a group of biblical texts that would seem to be closest kin with ancient texts that are supportive of the king. So that is, if you can, if you can find instances of this sort of uh, unusual, aggrandized divine aggression even in royal productions or texts that sort of circle the royal person and the dynasty, then um, that's kind of really proof of concept. So first looking at biblical royal texts and especially Psalms, and then seek, I, what I did was to seek texts from it, from the ancient world that are analogous to those royal biblical texts. Usually the Misha inscription the other shorter texts from Israel's ancient neighbors, you know, the, all the, the Hadad inscription and the Panamua inscription, these Aramaic language texts from the Iron Age, they have mostly been compared by biblical scholars to the longer narrative works in the Bible. So because they have kings in them and they're about gods and countries and wars, the, the natural go-to comparison for, for a lot of scholars has been judges. Joshua Kings, especially. But I, I wanted to, to bring in Psalms because uh, I think in some ways they function more similarly to what those inscriptions are trying to do there. Not just brief, but also have a shared, uh, more kind of lyrical quality to them. Um, they, the king speaks in his own voice in the, these royal inscriptions from ancient Israel's neighbors. And of course, they're just a, a fit comparand because of how they portray the gods in support of the king and in support of the country. Yeah, so you had a couple of psalms, or uh, several psalms you look at that are king-supportive, like Psalm 2, Psalm 110. And what did you find when you drew the comparison between those royal focus psalms and the memorial inscriptions where the king is speaking in the first person? Yeah, so psalms... Uh, two and one ten that you mentioned, Eichrot really detested. 
and he did because of uh, you know it's it's a pretty pretty good case to be made because of his um, I mean not a this is not too straight of a line but uh, because of his Calvinism you know his a lot of his theological work uh, I mean there's a, there are plenty of you know resonances exegetically but he's focused on sort of divine freedom and divine sovereignty and wants to prioritize in terms of the biblical canon works that communicate those emphases. So he really likes Hosea, uh, for example, uh, and texts that emphasize God has discretion to both support and love, but also to turn away from Israel because he, he wants to protect that divine sort of agency and sort of freedom discretion over against Israel. And so he really dislikes Psalms 2 and 110 because he finds in them that uh, they position God as more or less of an unconditional supporter of the king. Uh, and, and in even maybe some even more closer ways, sort of the father to the king. Uh, and so the, the, that kind of uh, metaphorization infringes on divine discretion to turn away from, from the king. So he, he dislikes them. They're very much more, they're very closer theologically to these sort of unconditionally state-supportive and kingship-affirming texts from Israel's neighbors. Yeah, and, and so as you noted, okay, so you're looking at comparisons between these texts and noted, noting that uh, divine aggression is not directed against the king, but against the king's enemies and opponents, against the nation's enemies. So at that level, you you said, okay, when I compare apples with apples, like as close as you can get to the genre of the memorial inscription, we find similarity. Is yes. that a fair summary? That is. Yeah, absolutely. And then you brought some other Psalms in for discussion. So talk about like Psalm 89 and 132. Yeah. So Psalm 89 has been, is such a fascinating long text for my Anglican students. The, the, the daily office always breaks it in half. So you sort of never really get the full rhetorical effect of Psalm 89 because it's so long and they break it up. Uh, so you get sort of the first half of it, which is uh, really playing up God's promise. It's so unconditional. Uh, God founds the world and at the same time, and in so in that God founds the whole world, God founds the Davidic dynasty. It is built into the fabric of the universe, David's kingship, and God will never go back on it. And then the second half of Psalm 89 is this sustained accusation and really some of the sharpest language I think ever weaponized in the Bible against God to say, you have thrown down your king. You have abrogated, even annulled the covenant. I mean, it's very extreme language. Uh, there's even um, uh, some record of uh, medieval Jewish rabbis who would not pray Psalm 89 because they found it blasphemous. A biblical psalm, blasphemous, uh, but it does come real close to saying that God has suspended the covenant and God has thrown down the king. And it's it's that first half that's sort of so rosy is is really made into this sort of gotcha. It's it's playing up how faithful God is and how God's built the Davidic dynasty into the, into the you know, warp and woof of the world to to sort of make the accusation sting all the more. But at any rate, with regard to the argument of the whole book, it's a clear case where that accusation, that kind of claim about God, that God has thrown down the king, God has sort of gone back on the promise that um, God has exalted the enemies of God's this dynasty, 
is unthinkable in the world world of those inscriptions. And and also, you know, in this seemingly in the shared theological content of Psalms two and one ten. I mean, it's just an extreme possibility that the rhetoric of those works just there's no 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 room for it. So stepping back then as you look at the sort of full council of Psalms in comparison with these memorial inscriptions, what's your kind of bottom line in terms of whether aggression against king and people features more prominently in Israel, or how would you kind of respond to that claim made by Velhausen and others? Yeah, I mean, I think I think in the end, one has to reckon with portraiture of the biblical God that exceeds in terms of its rendition of aggression. What certainly the royal texts of these neighbors could, they sort of state, you know, these, these are works commissioned by the king. So it's completely off their map for a God to aggress in these ways. And that's an interesting kind of sub point to make is that um, I think with Psalm 89 um, and really with the Psalter at large, with, with scripture at large, we don't have any, these aren't, even if bits and pieces of them were once sort of courtly productions, they've been transformed into something else because they've been curated and inherited by the successor communities. People who sort of traveled with the king, hoped in the king, but are not the king. And that's exactly what does not happen with these inscriptions, where it really is, I am Misha, son of Kimoshia. I did blah, blah, blah. There's no, there's no sort of third party uh, that sort of looks up to the king, but who carries the king's legacy on, which is definitely the case with the Psalter. And maybe there's a more complicated picture of divine aggression in uh, texts by Israel's neighbors. You know, I've also been really intrigued by the Dear Allah text, very strange. No one can even agree what language it's in. Is it Canaanite? Is it Aramaic? Is it Ammonite? But at any rate, it's a not seemingly a non-royal text. And its depiction of the gods' aggression, seem, it's kind of this weird apocalyptic text from, you know, from the Iron Age, uh, is more extreme. And so maybe there's a certain way in which not being directly kind of in the courtly institution makes more room theologically for envisioning the aggression of the, of the God. Yeah. Have you, have you ever thought that, you know, there's a sort of irony to the fact that the thing that so many Christians have a hang up with, with regard to the portrayal of God in the Old Testament, namely God's wrath and aggression is a very thing that allowed scripture or that contributed to scripture's survival. Yes, I'm keenly aware of that fact. And I, one of the refrains that I've used in a number of different teaching contexts that's related to that is just that classic works considered at large, not even sacred works, but just classic works are, are never easy. They are always opaque and difficult. You know, there's a reason why people still read Dostoevsky after a hundred years uh, is because you can't figure it out very easily, and there's a lot of bleak, weird stuff in there. Uh, and so that principle, at very least, should dispose us to some kind of posture of of uh, patience, at a minimum, with the sort of bleakness and oddity of biblical texts. Uh, and the second point I want to say is, I think there's actually, in this sort of looking more towards my constructive interests, there's a there's a, is a real symmetry for me, and I, this I only spotted belatedly through an interview I did uh, earlier this past year with the TAM Institute for Jewish Studies at Emory, but talking about how in a historical key, like I say, I've looked at God 
and especially about, about God's opposition to these human institutions that had a certain their sacrosanct status, you know, the kingship that God has promised to uphold forever, um, and so on. So God's opposition, but but at the end of the day, I'm interested in divine opposition constructively too, because a lot of what Miskota and really that whole generation of theologians that what they have in common is a dissonant perspective, is a is a is, an, is a capacity uh, to articulate some kind of divine no to the institutions that are at play in their own context. And my sense is that's very important, urgent for Christians to be to recover, to be able to resource how um, God is, in Miskota's words, a saboteur, not only the sort of supporter and you know one who sanctions the the uh, sacrosanct institutions. Yeah, that's really helpful. I like how you've kind of taken your historical work and then brought it into your constructive theological thinking, you know, when you talk to students who have a hang up, say with divine wrath or anger, what do you, what do you say on a kind of pastoral level to those sorts of questions? I have sought using works like Renita Weems and, and others to really help students to attend to the rhetorical gambit of biblical texts that wield violence and violent imagery. Um, and that, that doesn't necessarily, that kind of rhetorical interest, asking questions about what is this depiction of God trying to do in its moment, that doesn't anesthetize it somehow or, or sort of sanitize it, but it does localize it in some way, uh, positions it back from being, because I think a lot of students, at least in my experience, tend to approach scripture expecting that its kind of claims are for all times and places. And I think, like I say, sort of in a roundabout way, I want to affirm that, but you move from the particular towards some other kind of context. And so keying in to the, to the sort of how this moment of, of divine wrath subsists in the context of this re- ongoing relationship that's troubled and long-term between God and Israel, that that is sort of really, really important to hold on to and to prioritize, especially because we Gentile Christians are so much used to reading ourselves into everything and thinking, like I say, sort of the scripture directly downloadable into whatever situation we find ourselves in. So thinking back to the specific context in Israel's life with God and looking after the how the sort of the rhetorical interests um, of it doesn't take away the challenge of it, but but I think students would say they found that those kind of moves useful. That's great. Uh, a couple of quick speed round questions for you. What's the most significant book in biblical studies in the last 50 years? <laughs> I knew this one was going. Um, boringly, I think I would have to echo the same judgment as most of your your uh, guests, that Sanders is just hard to argue with that. I will say, when I was thinking about this, I wanted to say Brevard Childs as well, that his um, probably his Old Testament as scripture book uh, has been, at least as far as Hebrew Bible studies goes, massively influential sort of paradigm shifting has opened room for not just folks who are interested to mobilize his legacy specifically, and that's a whole cottage industry, but for a whole lot of other folks who use literary kinds of approaches to scripture who are kind of in his wake, but indirectly so. So like Fredheim will say that, you know, Childs opened space for him to do what he wanted to do. And then tons of people after Fredheim who aren't going to be, you know, quoting Childs, but who are, you know, whose work somehow was afforded by the intellectual terrain that he 
uh, made, made available. Okay, what's one idea in biblical studies that you think needs to die? You probably knew that was coming too. Yeah, and again, I think my answer would have to be something pretty simple, like God's covenant with Israel, with the Jewish people, is not instrumental, not just annulled, not just set aside, not just replaced, but also not instrumental. What's your favorite theologian and why? Favorite theologian? Gosh, I have... uh, I really benefited spiritually from three, Brother Roger, Isaac of Nineveh, Julian of Norwich. Do you want to give a why for one of those? You don't have to do all three, just one of them. <laughs> I, th- I really have appreciated it. It's kind of, in a way, it sounds um, maybe paradoxical get alongside of my brand as a divine aggression guy, but their em- emphasis, the sort of thoroughgoing emphasis on divine compassion has been really helpful. What's a conspiracy theory that you used to hold? Most of the conspiracy theories that I've ever espoused, I probably still do. So it's a tricky one to answer. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So they're not, they're not yet conspiracy theories in your view. Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. Conspiracy theory. Um, That's tough. I don't know. Yeah. Like you don't look back on anything that you believed as a kid and and like, Oh, I was, that was a conspiracy theory. You're pretty immune to that stuff. Yeah, no, I don't know. Maybe, uh, I don't know. I think I read, um, I don't know if we, you know who uh, Francois Fainlon is? No. He was like a court spiritual advisor to Louis something or other, the Sun King, you know, the famous. But, anyways, I read his writings when I was way too young to read them. And uh, that sort of set me off on a track, a spiritual track that's well trod, but a very kind of scrupulous scrupulous one. So that's a conspiracy theory that okay. I have happily moved through. So like a kind of scrupulosity in, in, in the faith that you had to kind of untangle yourself from later. Yeah. I'm all in favor of self-inventory and self-examination and all that. But I think, I think it's best to have a little bit more developed of a self. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't myself assign Puritans or Fain law or something to somebody who's a preteen. <laughs> yeah. Um, are you a sports fan at all? Casually baseball. Yeah. I mean, I don't really keep track of teams. Okay. So who's the best baseball player of all time? Hmm. Who's the GOAT? Probably Babe Ruth, but I had a um, Jackie Robinson. I had a, a card of uh, Mike Piazza that I was really proud of when I was a kid. So maybe Mike Piazza. Nice. Yeah. I was a Tony Gwynn collector and, and Gwynn never like led the team to a World Series victory or really never hit more than singles and doubles. I mean, he did hit home runs too, but... Uh, I just liked that he had a really high batting average. Yes, yes. As a kid, it was like Tony Gwynn and Wade Boggs always had the highest averages, and that's what fascinated me. Very satisfying. I have a bunch of Tony Gwynn cards, no rookie card or anything of value, but (laughs) there you go. Hang on to him. Hang Uh, on to him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So you've edited, I want to bring our uh, discussion to a close, but you've edited this volume called Divine Doppelgangers, Yahweh's Ancient Lookalike. So there again, you're in the kind of, realm of comparison, of thinking about ancient Israel in relation to its neighbors, specifically God and God's relationship. So maybe you could map for us like how people have thought about Yahweh and the gods of Canaan or Israel's neighbors. Uh, what are the options on the table? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I mean, that the book is um, grew out of comparison and grew out of really work in a historical key. 
I found, however, that as a seminarian who was first having to read through, say, the Misha inscription, uh, that there were very few resources that seemed to talk about that, the kind of challenges that that maybe poses in, in the constructive way. So there's plenty of resources out there, maybe not in your Walmart bargain bin, but other accessible kinds of places um, that will draw attention to the similarities of the Book of God with one or another ancient deities in, in various ways. Yeah, like Mark Smith has kind of written a lot in that area. Yes, yes, that's right. Yeah, that's right. But not so much that where you have somebody who is schooled in that material who then turns around and says, and this is how Christians or Jews can think about that as people who are worshiping one of the gods that survived the Iron Age. So I wanted, I wanted for resources as a seminarian myself, and that, that consideration lay dormant. I found a couple essays that I, that I found helpful. I think in the end, I've ended up disagreeing with them, but they were really helpful for helping me to just work, work through and think more carefully, think better about these kind of issues. And that was uh, one very long, well, three, maybe uh, one by Patrick Miller. That was his uh, address that he gave when he was first installed as a professor. Patrick Miller being a famous, legendary professor at Princeton Seminary for a long time. Another one by Otmar Kale, uh, who is sort of the founder of the Freeburg Iconography School, but wrote a really long essay along these lines. And then John Levinson uh, wrote a piece uh, quite a long time ago, in the 80s maybe, um, but about comparing the ways the New Testament polemicizes against Jews with how Hebrew scripture polemicizes against Canaanites. So those are three constructive ones I found. And then I wanted to get those out to more people, republish them, print them, and then also to invite uh, scholars who are knowledgeable about the ancient world and these kind of similarities to talk directly, constructively, but what would they recommend as a, as a sort of strategy theologically to worshiping communities, Jews and Christians. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you talk in there, um, well, I know Patrick Miller's article talks about the idea of Yahweh kind of emerging out of the gods of Canaan and that region. There are, are also ways of thinking about Yahweh absorbing qualities of other gods or aspects of other gods, sort of the gods in Yahweh, and then Yahweh against other gods. So, you know, given that sort of mapping of relationships between Yahweh and the gods of Canaan and neighbors, what do you do constructively with those historical claims yeah. uh, in terms of, as a, as a Christian, mm-hmm. thinking mm-hmm. about, you know, worshiping this god, yet this god might have kind of close affinities with Canaanite gods and so on? Yeah, I mean, I think, and this, and this may be looping back to your earlier question, that we have at least three options um, as far as how to think, how to think about those um, similarities, those sort of uh, religious debts to Canaanite religion and affinities and so on. And the one is the track that Miller himself follows. And that is um, to somehow recognize God's activity in and through all these deities that kind of resemble the biblical God. And so it's kind of like uh, the Bible has the, fullness of truth, but these other gods are sort of refractions of truth, something like that. And so insofar as they are similar to the biblical God, then they are witnesses to the true God. So they're sort of, there's a sort of theology of religions there that's, that's active um, in, in Miller's proposal. The other uh, route, which is definitely the more common one in the history of Christian theologizing, is to say Chemosh and crew 
are demons, which is maybe not a, you know, I think it got dinged by a reviewer in RBL uh, on that score. It's not a scholarly option, but I thought it was worth recognizing just because it is, it is a probably the most popular option. And maybe even today among Christians, that's, that would be the most popular option. And then the third option, I said there's at least three, but another one is, and this is sort of the one that I sought to articulate following Miskota, actually. I, I wanted to get into Miskota more deeply in part to write the chapter that I did for this volume, is to say kind of a Lombardian or Rosenzweigian lines that the biblical God is just explainable in all the same ways as our other ancient gods. So run your sort of sociology and anthropological reasoning out fully. And that explains the biblical God. But that God, sort of by God's own decision, has condescended to bind the divine self to this very specific name and specific repertoire of characteristics and sort of, uh, and so that God has in effect made it to genuinely mediate the divine self. And not as something kind of extrinsic, but as something that, you know, God is sort of that from Miskota and Eberhard Jungel and others in that sort of Barty and train sort of God is eternally on route toward humankind. And we can talk about that. It's complicated, but, but that means that there's sort of a trustworthiness to God's self-disclosure, even as yes, it is ex- explicable all the way down in all the same ways as Kimash or Marduk or whomever. Yeah. I think that's really helpful that you've, you've done this work because I think for a lot of people in seminary or a theological college, if they read biblical scholarship and they pick up an article and it says, what are the origins of Yahweh? That can be really jolting. <laughs> yes. Because, the, the, and, and often that scholarship is not acknowledging or at least nodding toward the fact that there's a theological way to frame this. But just st- launching in with that question, well, how do we trace the origins of Yahweh out of Southern Edom or in the, the Sinai Peninsula or you know, within Canaan, you know, and, and it's like, well, hold on a second. God's eternal is what a lot of st- students are, are thinking as they're reading that, but that literature is not even acknowledging that that might be a question. So I think, I think what you've done in this volume in bringing these essays together is really helpful. Thanks for that, Matt. Yeah. I mean, I, I edited it and worked through it in kind of the darkest days of COVID and precarity. And so I'm always grateful to hear that it somehow meets the people that, that might, might benefit from it. Yeah, I definitely encourage listen, listeners to to pick up that that volume on Divine Doppelgangers. Tell me about your current projects briefly as we bring this to a close. You've got a book that you just sent off to the publisher called Monotheism and Divine Aggression. Is that right? That is correct. Yeah. And that's sort of, um, that was at the invitation of the series editors of Cambridge's uh, Elements in Religion and Monotheism series, I guess, just examining different facets of monotheism. The basic argument I make in the book is kind of a spinoff from the first Cambridge monograph, but a lot of new material, but still comparative material, and really making the argument that monotheizing, that is concentrating all divine powers into one literary character, God, has this byproduct effect of amplifying aggression. So you can think of that with the flood story. I know, uh, Matt, you worked with the flood story pretty recently that in the sort of Mesopotamian version, you have a more distributed set of agents, you know, some gods who try to, one god who tries to sort of renegade, rescue the flood hero, other gods who are sad, you know, Nintu, the mother goddess is super sad about the flood and recriminates the other gods and how could I do this? And then, you know, divine anger and irritation at the noise of the humans, whatever. Whereas the Bible sort of concentrates all those roles into sort of one 
character, with the result as a much more complex character, but also arguably a more aggressive character. And so sort of running that experiment with other case studies uh, to show how the literary reflex of monotheism, because I don't, monotheism is a tricky one, but ends up intensifying aggression. And then I'm also interested in the ways that our that Jewish and Christian traditions sort of counterbalance that. But in, in the end, interestingly, neither of us have really run with that explanation that we have repopulated the heavenlies with other agents that sort of distribute powers back like an Enoch in the flood, the watchers. Yeah. So, so the, the kind of downstream of monotheism, if you want to put it that way, is, is not a, an empty heaven by any means. Right. Um, and then you've got uh, another book that you're working on called The Lords That Never Were, Early Judaism and the Gods of the Hellenistic Levant. Yeah, that, nice. Have I got that title correct? I'm glad that you, yeah, that one's not in a contract or anything, but um, I have been writing on the what will probably, hopefully, God willing, end up as chapters in that for a long time. And that's really tracing out the quote-unquote afterlives, I don't know what, that's probably the wrong term, but of these other Levantine people. So there's a common perception, I think. Uh, or at least most most sort of handbooks to ancient Israel's neighbors will leave off in the Babylonian or Persian period. You know, the Moabites just kind of sputter out, the Ammonites, who knows what happens to them, and so on. And uh, whereas, you know, I've been uh, tracking down what did happen with them. And as it ha- as it turns out, they uh, they kept on going. You know, there were still Moabites calling on the name of Chemosh in the time of Jesus Christ, or, you know, Edomians down in Egypt who were worshiping Kos uh, in the Hellenistic period. And so sort of really tracing out these communities as they persist and then trying to think about what does that, how does that complicate our view of early Judaism and early Samaritanism and early Christianity to have these really closely similar in certain ways, yet different religious parallels. Oh, that sounds like a a fascinating book and, and something I haven't really thought through myself. I kind of operate with that stereotype too. So That'll be useful to me and I'm sure a lot of other people as well. Uh, Colin, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to uh, talk through your work, your scholarship, and uh, I hope our listeners are able to engage it. So thanks so much. Thank you, Matt. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study donate.